Good morning. Let's turn to uh, Genesis 47. I'm sorry, 41. Genesis 41. I actually know what chapter we're supposed to be in. At least I think I do. Genesis 41. A couple of weeks ago when our ladies were at a retreat, uh, we began this chapter. I didn't want to go too far. I didn't want to get them too far behind the, the schedule of what we're doing. But it was a good uh, chapter nonetheless for us to look at just in those first 16 verses. Um, they're not going to really miss anything out because they're, they're, you know, we're, we're going to recount the, uh, the dreams of, of Pharaoh. Those dreams that actually bring Joseph out of prison into the palace of the Pharaoh. But what an amazing life we have been studying in the person of Joseph. What an amazing life it is to have someone at such a young age of his adult life, 17 years old, be taken away from his family by his own brothers who hated him, who would have rather killed him and just gotten rid of him at, the, uh, uh, at that time in his life. But through it all, we see the hand of God protecting him and keeping him. Even more than that, using Joseph as a, a great type of Jesus Christ, who is yet to come, of course, at that, at that point in time. And as we have looked at this from the standpoint of seeing Joseph go from a pit, the pit where his brothers threw him in, in a sense really reminiscent of, of the tomb. In fact, he is dead to his father. The brothers made sure of that. They didn't kill him, but they sold him into slavery. But they told his father, your son is dead. For all intents and purposes. It was a type of death. Thrown into a pit. Out of that pit, he's put into the prison of slavery in Egypt. In particular, in the house of a man named Potiphar, who was actually the keeper of all the law enforcement of Egypt. And in Potiphar's house, we see God's hand still with, with Joseph, watching over him, using him. Joseph's life reflecting Certainly his trust in the living God, all in all still a prisoner. And then we see the evil of Potiphar's wife, who was an adulterous wife, who sought Joseph out. And Joseph would not sin against his, his God in doing anything that he shouldn't. And so he ran and... In his running, he's accused of rape and thrown into prison. Again, the hand of God with, with Joseph, because 
actually he should have been executed for that crime, even though he didn't commit it. Certainly reminiscent of, a, of our Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified on a cross on our behalf, having never sinned himself. But he spends 13 years of his life as a prisoner of slavery and a prisoner until one day when Pharaoh has dreams. And the butler who had been in prison for a short time with Joseph finally remembers that Joseph had been the one who had interpreted his dreams and the dreams of the baker, the two that were in there because of something that had happened in, in Pharaoh's uh, household. And, and uh, yet the two dreams that were given to Joseph, one of the ba- butler, one of the baker, those, those two dreams were perfectly interpreted. The butler was released and put back into the, uh, into the good standing of, of Pharaoh. The baker was executed and his head taken from him just as Joseph had revealed in the interpretation of the dream. So now the butler reminds Pharaoh, he says, hey, there, there is that Hebrew in prison, and he really interpreted my dream perfectly in the dream of the baker, and you ought to, you ought to call on him. And that's where we are here today. Joseph, taken out of prison and put into the palace of Pharaoh. We're going to talk a little bit about promotion today. That's quite a promotion. We begin in verse 14, just going back a couple of verses, just to kind of get a little context. tells us that Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can, you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. Think about this. Joseph always gave God the glory. Joseph always pointed back to God for whatever it was that Joseph did. He said, it is not in me. In other words, it is not inherent in me that I have this special gift over everybody else. It isn't me, it's God. And he says, it is not in me, God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. It will come through me, I am just God's servant. It is not in me. Whatever I have, I have because God has given it to me. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. Of course, we know that to be the river Nile, which was the most prominent river in in Egypt. And suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as that 
the beginning, and so I awoke. I think I would have awakened too. That's a pretty ugly, ugly dream. I mean, to have this dream and not understand what it's all about. I mean, these thin little skinny cows eat up the fat cows, and yet the skinny cows don't get any fatter. That's kind of weird. Then he goes on and he says, Also I saw in my dream and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk. In other words, heads of grain. Seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, full and good. And then behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one. There was no one who could explain it to me. And so there Joseph stood before Pharaoh. You know, Joseph is the ideal example of the faithful and committed person whom God raises up and elevates into places and positions of power and prestige for the purpose of fulfilling God's perfect will at the appropriate time, no matter what the conditions and circumstances have had to be faced. No matter what kinds of things have had to be done to get them there. That's the life of Joseph. In Joseph's case, as I've already stated, he faced the hatred and animosity of his own brothers, the pit of their anger for not having killed him outright, the prison of his slavery, first to the Ishmaelites who bought him, and second to the Egyptian who purchased him, and third to the unjust and immoral incarceration due to lies of Potiphar's wife. Through it all, you see, through it all we have seen the precious and providential hand of the Lord as He sets certain things in motion and sets other things in place to have Joseph in the perfect place to accomplish His will for the sake of the children of Israel. That's what's happening here. And there is something of great importance for us to learn about the issue of promotion, the issue of elevation or exaltation. Promotion, elevation, exaltation. These are three words that can actually, actually be used in the Scriptures for the same thing happening. The point is that promotion, elevation, or exaltation never comes from man. Now listen carefully. It never comes from man. You might say, well, yeah, well, I just got promoted last week and my boss told me this and that. Well, maybe so. But in the full scope of things, it doesn't really come from man. It comes from God. It always comes from God. Why is it that we as believers in Jesus Christ, when a promotion might come, when, a, when, when we're put into a place of a position that we didn't expect maybe to get or whatever, yet we're there, who, who do we give thanks to? We give thanks to the Lord. Wow, Lord, thanks. Didn't expect that. Well, this is good. Raise, everything, you know. We get excited about the raise, don't we? Yeah. It's not always about that, is it? It's about why we're there. Why God has done this. We don't always understand the fullness of why, but we don't have to worry about it. God's in control, isn't He? 
You see, in Psalm 75, the psalmist speaks strongly there in that psalm, Psalm 75. He speaks strongly to the wicked to warn them to change their heart attitude toward God and that they should not condescendingly defy the Lord. In other words, the wicked should realize that when the Lord judges, no help comes from any earthly direction. When God judges, whether good or bad, when God judges, no help is going to come from man. So, if you are familiar with Psalm 75 verse 6, in the King James Version it says, For promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. The New King James says, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Both meanings are the same. For elevation comes neither from the east or from the west or from the south. Notice it doesn't say the north. And we could spend some time on on why that is, but primarily in in that uh, time and culture, east, west, and south were actually directions that man took. What came from the north would come from God. It would, it would be kind of like this kind of direction for us. North is just straight up, coming from the Lord. In any event, it says, For exaltation, promotion, elevation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge, and He puts down one and exalts another. He puts down one, He exalts another. It's God that is doing this. Ultimately speaking, and in His sovereignty, that is what He's doing. God is sovereign in all that He does. No one tells God what to do, in other words. Take for example as well in Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His. And He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. It is God who does that. Man doesn't do that. Ultimately speaking, it is God's sovereignty being expressed. It is God's sovereignty being experienced. The hard thing sometimes for us is that, for example, in our own country, when we have national elections every four years, or every two years, whatever it is, every four years for some, every six years for others, every two years, we, you know, we go out there, we campaign for who we believe is, should, should be, a, you know, President of the United States. But ultimately, when that happens, the Lord has done the work. In some cases, it is to have someone there because something is going to happen and the right person is in the right place at the right time. In other times, certain people are placed in positions of authority and leadership and power, not just for that time, but to express God's judgment. I think you all understand that sometimes we get what we pay for, as it were, as a nation. It's God who raises up. It's God who raises, uh, removes and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Because God knows and can reveal the future. And just as he who, uh, that He would give Daniel 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpretation, because that actually happens many years later after Joseph. He gives Daniel Nebuchadnezzar's dream and interpretation many years later, so would the Lord give Joseph the Pharaoh's dream and interpretation as well. Now that man standing before Pharaoh was quite a different person than the young son of Jacob. A lot has happened since he was 17. And as I stated last time, God was working in Joseph so that he could work through Joseph. God was working in Joseph for 13 years so that he could work through Joseph when he was 30 years old before Pharaoh. God had done some deep work in Joseph's heart, in Joseph's mind, and in Joseph's life, building his character through 13 years of affliction and waiting. 13 years of affliction. Some of us cannot endure 13 minutes of affliction. Before we start complaining, before we start murmuring, before we start accusing God of not loving us and not caring for us, or we accuse God of leaving us. God said, I didn't move. He doesn't. He, he said, I'll be with you. But God was building Joseph's character through 13 years of affliction and waiting, 13 years of his heart being broken, 13 years of his pride being drained, all the while discovering that God's presence and God's nearness is what is so necessary. God's presence and God's nearness. That is what's necessary for each and every one of us to learn from the life of Joseph. Time and again, we are told in the Scriptures here in the book of Genesis about Joseph that God was with Joseph. God was with him. God never left him. It doesn't say God was with him, and, but, but then when he was going to face his, his brother's uh, anger, well, he would step away for a little while. Eventually he'd catch up with him in Egypt. No, that's not God. God was with him in the pit. God was with him in, in slavery. God was with him in prison. That's what this text is telling us. And that is why God's presence and God's nearness is what is so necessary. Because Joseph grew to trust in God and in being faithful to the God who never left him in every one of his trials. He was brought so low. But now, he was going to be elevated and exalted to a higher place. I mean, if you've been in the pit and in the prison, there's only one direction to go. That's up. And God would elevate him and exalt him to this higher place. In the passage that we just read, the Pharaoh in telling Joseph his dream filled in some more of the details there. We'll, we'll actually talk about that when we see the dreams coming to fulfillment. So what God was showing Pharaoh in his dreams was what he was about to do. As a matter of fact, the next part of the text here tells us that. Look at verse 25 of our text in Genesis 41. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh... Now, Joseph is going to be speaking directly to the king of Egypt... And he says to him, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. 
The dreams of Pharaoh are one. You had two dreams, but in fact they're one dream. So you get two for the price of one. The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Right there, there's the answer. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven good heads of grain are seven years. The dreams are one. In other words, those, same, those seven years are the same seven years. Just from two different perspectives. Cows and grain. What does that equate to? Food. Got, got the idea? Got the picture? The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years. They're seven different years. So now the second dream, or the second part of each dream, is talking about another seven years. The seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. So in total, he's talking about 14 years. Seven good years and seven bad years. And and this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. This is a dream or a series of dreams given by God to Pharaoh for the future. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. The first seven years. But after them, seven years of famine will arise and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. As if when you think of the seven thin, ugly cows eating the big fat cows, and the, fat cow, the, the, the thin cows do not get any fatter. I mean, that's pretty lean. I mean, that's pretty severe. That's a pretty severe famine. When what is forgotten is what came before. You know, we're like that. Think about this for a moment. We're like that. When God blesses us, oh my goodness, we can't stop thanking Him. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Oh, praise God. Yes, Lord. Yes, yes, yes. But the minute that something bad happens, where we might even lose a lot of what we had before, we forget what we had before. We forget how God had blessed. And God says, wait a minute, why'd you forget? Aren't you supposed to thank me even in the times of your troubles? Where, by the way, sometimes I take you through these times so I can show you greater blessings at the end? (laughs) I just want to bless you. But sometimes you have to go through these times. I'm not putting you through this because I hate you. Or because you messed up? I, you know, I, I, when I think about that, I think about how many people today who don't love God, they don't love the Lord, they would do, just, just do fine without hearing about Jesus. They are prospering. Why are they prospering, Lord? Get rid of them all. And then we remember the Word of God that says, He reigns on the wicked and on the good. You be thankful. You be grateful. But don't forget. As a matter of fact, remember that God has done this because He can do it again later after the famine. 
Keep that in mind. Because it says, and the famine will deplete the land. In other words, it'll suck it all up and it won't even look like there was ever any plenty. You see how the dream works there. So, the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, God is showing Pharaoh the future. God is showing Pharaoh the future. And that should always remind us that the Word of God from beginning to end is a book of prophecy. The Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, New Testament, all put together, the Bible or the book of Scriptures is beginning to end a book of prophecy. It is a highly prophetic book. And you might say, well, how could that be? I mean, from the very beginning. Well, think about it this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And just in a nutshell, we know that everything that God created in chapter 1, as well as part of chapter 2, or most of chapter 2, is good. Because it all says that everything that God created was good. Perfect. And there was something else God created in all of this, in the course of, of the creation. On this earth, He had a garden. And in that garden was perfection. And in that garden was plenty. And in that garden was everything that man needed, the man and the woman that God brought forth. Everything. But there was only one commandment. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, of course you're going to die. What a warning. One commandment. So Satan, in the form of the serpent, deceives and tempts Eve and Adam, the man and the woman, and they eat of that tree and they begin to die. And everything changes. Everything changes. And it is there where the first real true prophetic word is given. And given to Satan, by the way, when it tells us in there in, in, in Genesis 3.15 that he will bring enmity between him, the devil, and the seed of the woman. That is the first prophecy concerning Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come. Now here's where, I, where, where the book is a book of prophecy from Genesis to Revelation. What was perfect in the garden is what we're looking forward to in the future. Beginning with Jesus entering into, this, into the city of Jerusalem to sit on the throne of David and to reign on this earth for a thousand years when everything will change because of His rule and His reign. And then after that, of course, comes the new earth, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem where righteousness will dwell. Folks, it is going from the old garden that was corrupted by sin and coming into the new garden. That is what we're looking forward to. And it is because of Jesus. So we're looking forward to the coming of Jesus again. Jesus came already to die for the sins of men. What are we looking for now? For Jesus to return. We're pointing us, God's pointing us forward. God's pointing us in that direction. This is a book of prophecy. Genesis to Revelation. It's about God restoring everything that was upset by sin. 
and destroying sin and death, which Jesus has already truly done on the cross. You see the importance of prophecy. So it is a highly prophetic book, in other words, and in case... In the case of Joseph and Pharaoh, the events that were prophesied would occur shortly and we learn that God graciously warns man in ample time so man can adequately prepare for the, for the future. That is what we're given in the Word of God. He's wanting us to prepare for the future because someone is coming. Who's coming? Don't say Santa Claus. Who's coming? Jesus said, I'm coming again, and I'm coming quickly, it says in the book of Revelation. I am coming quickly. You need to be ready. We continually tell you, be ready. Why? Because the prophetic book that God has given us is pointing us to His coming. He's given us ample opportunity, ample warning to get ready. What are we doing with all of those warnings? Pharaoh is being given as a leader of a great nation. He's being given a warning. These things are going to happen. What we do, whether we do it or not, but what we do has eternal considerations. So listen, I suggest that we need to be taking this from this passage. We need to prepare for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now, both dreams were about the same truth. Seven years of plenty would be followed by seven years of famine. The years of famine would be so bad that the years of plenty would be forgotten, as we saw in verse 30. But in verse 32, which is up here still, Joseph informs Pharaoh why he had two dreams about the same event. First thing is consider this question. Why does God repeat things? Now, let's be specific in this particular context, in this particular chapter. This is why God has repeated things. First of all, these dreams had to do with the certainty of the events. It had to do with the certainty of the events. He says in verse 32, because the thing is established by God. The Lord, folks, doesn't repeat things because He is senile. God isn't senile. The Lord doesn't repeat things because God is forgetful. I'm forgetful. Is anybody else here forgetful? Am I alone? No? Well, we're all forgetful, young and old, rich and poor. We're all forgetful, aren't we? Pretty and even more pretty. Because nobody's ugly here. We're all forgetful, but God isn't. He repeats with reason. He repeats to emphasize the certainty of something. God has established it, therefore it is going to happen. That's why things are repeated. And secondly, God repeats things for the calendar of events. He repeats things to show us that there is a calendar of events. The second purpose, by the way it says there in verse 32, God will shortly bring it to pass. In other words, there is something coming. The second purpose of the repetition is to show the imminence or the nearness of the events. That's why we have the Word of God. It is showing us that things are happening in our world right now that was prophesied 2,000 years ago. They are happening even to this day. Now we've got to wake up to that. It's not a coincidence. 
It's not a happenstance. It is a truth that Jesus said, these things are going to happen before I come again. Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. So the second purpose of the repetition is to show the imminence or the nearness of the events. Both reasons show the need of urgency in the preparation. The certainty of events, the calendar of events. I mean, what is going to happen is going to happen shortly. The seven good years of harvest are coming soon, and they will be followed by seven years of severe famine in the land. But there's a third reason why God repeats things. The third reason is the confirmation of events. It is to confirm the things coming to pass. In this case, these dreams were the two witnesses. Now, throughout Scripture, the standard for God of, of something coming to pass requires two or three witnesses. It, it, it requires it mostly for bad things, as in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If one person just have a, has a bad beef about somebody and, and goes out and, and makes these accusations, but can't can supply a second person to bring that accusation, then it goes nowhere. That was the law. But it also worked in good things. Consider what Jesus said, that where two or more are gathered in His name, there He would be. Isn't that a good thing? And we give good witness when there's more than just one person, you know. I mean, one witness is good for the church. One witness is good for Christ, but two or more are better. And so, that's why God repeats things. The importance of that. Certainty, calendar, confirmation. So wouldn't you just say that Joseph's release from prison came right at the right time? I mean, it just came at the perfect time, didn't it? Isn't that the hand of God? For him to be there to give this interpretation to Pharaoh? Are we getting the truth that has been so prominent in our study of Joseph's life? That truth that, that Paul would give us in Romans 8.28 when he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. <coughs> Excuse me. To those who are the called according to his purpose. Are we getting it? The life of Joseph, just about, just about on every page of chapters 37 to, to 50, show God's hand, the providential hand of God. We know that all things work together for good. All the struggles, all the trials, all the ups, all the downs, all the wrestlings, all the near misses of death and destruction, all things work together for good. By the way, it is interesting to note that in the 19th century, maybe about 150 years ago, two inscriptions were found on marble tablets dated around uh, 1800 years before the birth of Jesus. And they were found in, in the nation of Yemen, which is part of Saudi Arabia, the, the Arabian Peninsula and all of that. Uh, so 150 years ago, these British archaeologists actually were excavating. They found these marble tablets. Both of them had uh, these poems on them. One, and both poems were about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. And even one of them mentions Joseph by name. They were dated 1,800 years 
before Jesus' birth, which is just exactly around the time of Joseph. Just an interesting thing to note, how God will bring that forth to show how reliable His Word is. While we move on in verses 33 to 36, Joseph is still speaking to Pharaoh. We have to get back to that. Now therefore, he says to Pharaoh, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let me tell you right now that Joseph is not dropping hints on Pharaoh. He is speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So he's speaking these things as God is leading him. So he's not dropping hintasos on Pharaoh, you know, for anything. Just so you'll know. Uh, let Pharaoh do this, he says. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. So what we see happening here is that God is actually giving Pharaoh a plan, giving it through Joseph to tell Pharaoh this is how he wants things done. This, by the way, is a really good plan. Think about it. He says, go throughout all the land and tell everybody in those seven years that they are to gather 20% of their produce, what they provide, no matter, you know, if some maybe have one acre, others have thousands of acres, everybody just gives their their, one-fifth or their 20%. In other words, this is like a tax. It's just an even tax for everybody. Everybody gives 20%. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's pretty easy to understand that if they do that, They are doing it out of the seven plentiful years for what? For the sake of having in the seven years of famine. As you'll see in just a moment. But I'm bringing this up because you know this is a plan that would actually work in our day and time. I mean we've just had our our taxes taken from us. Or you know at least recorded taxes. Recently. We all just went oh. Finally got that out of the way. Some of you got back. Others had to pay again. But the tax code, if you know anything about the tax code, changes every year. And somehow you have to go through books that are about this thick, you know, to read a tax code. When this is so simple, it's one verse. Everybody gives the same percentage. That's it. If everybody did that, Just 20% of whatever you have, it's okay. See, it really does work because even with the church and with uh, Israel, God says give a tithe, a 10%. If everybody did that, there's no problem. If we were to do that in the United States of America, let's just say not even go to the 20%, let's just do the 10%. We wouldn't be in the situation we're in today, honestly. Fighting over who has more and the more. The ones who have the most should be giving and the ones who don't have anything shouldn't give anything at all. No, no, no. Everybody has to contribute. But if you have the same percentage, nobody's hurting. Everybody gives the same in that respect. Wow, if we would just do what God says, we would bless the country. We would bless churches if everybody did as God commanded. It would be a blessing. See, that's all I'm going to say. One-fifth, he says, of the produce of the land. Collect it. 
for the seven years, every seven years. Because he says, let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. So there would be a storage taken. And then that food shall be as a reserve, notice, for the land of the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. Now think about this. I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here in this, but think about this for just a moment. You collect 20% of everybody's produce for seven years to benefit the next seven years where nothing is going to grow, and you're not only going to be able to benefit the land and the people of Egypt, but even those who come from other lands requesting help during a time of severe famine, which is not only in Egypt, but in other places, which includes the sons of Israel who come to Egypt to receive help because of the famine in Canaan, and then they have to bow down to someone. Who? Joseph. Is God's hand in this or what? But the point is that what is collected in seven years would actually benefit beyond seven years. It would benefit beyond just one nation. It would benefit others who would come. And no one would be hurt by it. Boy, if we would just do what God provides. As far as wisdom, we would see Him do great and mighty things. So there He is, explaining these things to the Pharaoh. So think of what Joseph is doing here. He not only tells Pharaoh what is coming, he also tells Pharaoh what needs to be done during this time. The Lord has given Joseph a plan. There are many people out there today who are very good at complaining. That's none of you here. I know that. Right? There are many of you who are very good at complaining. Oh, no, no, not you. Somewhere out there, there are people who are just good at complaining. But they don't know how to resolve the situation. We just live in a, in a society today that, boy, I tell you what, the, you know, the opinion matters more than solutions. And there just aren't enough Dr. Phil's around here today, you know, to help everybody out. But everybody's got a problem. And then there are those who complain, but they don't want to assist in resolving situations. May, may I just tell you very simply, folks, don't complain about something. Don't complain. Don't murmur. Don't be divisive. Don't cause dissension. The Bible, as a matter of fact, has a lot of places where it tells us that we aren't to divide and we aren't to cause dissension. Don't think that, that's, that, that, that the church is the only place where you hear that and this is the only place where you, where, you, uh, where you serve in that way. No, no, no. You go out those doors... Don't cause division, don't cause dissension, don't murmur, and don't complain. I ask you to pray then. Instead of doing those things, pray. Ask the Lord to give you His plan to resolve whatever problem is facing you. 
Isn't our God big enough to do that? Hasn't He already given us His Word that gives us the wisdom that we need to? Are we getting into God's Word? Instead, we're trying to solve things by the world's ways and the world's means and not the way God wants us to. So listen, let's be careful. Let's get back to Joseph here. Joseph wasn't arrogantly telling the king of Egypt what to do. This was a humble servant of the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealing God's plan of salvation. There was a plan of salvation being given here because the people, man, were going to suffer if they didn't follow God's plan. Seems like the, like the same plan given to us about eternal salvation. If we don't follow God's plan, the way that God has presented it through Jesus Christ, for what Christ has done on the cross, for what Christ has done in shedding His blood for our forgiveness, if we don't follow His plan, thinking that we have a better plan than God's, we're not really going to be saved, are we? If we keep saying, I, you know, I have my own way to God, then you don't have the right way to God. You need to come to the right way to God, which is God's Word that says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Here's a whole known world that could perish if they don't do what God says. But we think we know better than God sometimes, don't we? We have a better way. I can assure you we don't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you know what that means? Come through me, through my wisdom, through my grace, through my word, through my mercies, through my grace through my laws, through my commandments, through everything that I represent. Don't forget that Jesus said, I did not come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. The law is still important because it teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us about ourselves as sinners and it teaches us about the solution to our sin, which is Jesus. If we don't come through Jesus the right way, we don't get saved. That's the bottom line. In that plan that God gave from Joseph to Pharaoh was an urgent call to action for Pharaoh who was appointed and placed there by God for this very situation to appoint someone to administer this plan. You know who that someone is going to be? Don't even have to say it. Let's go back a step here. Within that plan given to Joseph, there is that 20% taxes we talked about on the produce of the land during the seven bountiful years of harvest. And the reason is simple. The seven years of famine were coming, and this supply would offset those bad years. Now, let's consider what takes place after this plan is presented. After Joseph presents the plan to Pharaoh, it says in verse 37, So, the advice was good. In the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. The advice, the advice was good. It was good. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find... Now, I want you to listen carefully to what Pharaoh says. Can we find 
such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God. Who is he talking about? Who is he talking about? Joseph. (laughs) Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? I want to tell you that when he says the Spirit of God, he's not talking about the the, the God of the sun or the God of the moon or the God of, of dogs and cats. He is talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when he says the Spirit of God, he says this is the living God. Can there be such a one as this man in whom is the living God, the Spirit of the living God? Well, then Joseph, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house. Wow! He says to Joseph, You shall be over my house. And all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Stop there and think. He's telling this to an ex-con. Now, I know that he was innocent, but he was in prison. What this tells me is Potiphar did not believe that Joseph had committed the crime that he did. He had to do something. Remember that. The people who knew Joseph when he served as a, as, as, as a servant of Potiphar knew that he would have done that. The keeper of the prison and the people that, that were prisoners there who were with Joseph day to day for those two years of his pr- imprisonment, they knew that he wouldn't have done that. And all of that just seeps down to Pharaoh who also knew that this man, this young man of 30 years of age would have never committed those acts that he was imprisoned for. He speaks to him as if he had never committed a crime or a sin What does that tell you? In this, Joseph is a type of Jesus who went to the cross on our behalf, never having sinned himself and suffered for our sins. He says, You shall be over my house. All my people shall be ruled according to your word. Now, only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. In other words, well, Joseph, you know, just understand this. I am Egyptian. And I am a king. And I've got royal blood. And that is my throne. So, in regards to the throne, that's not yours. You can get to sit over there. But but that's okay, because you're going to be sitting really close to me. You're my second in command in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. Now this is very significant. He took his ring off of his finger and he did something that was only ever done in that time and culture. It was only ever done from a father to a son or to an heir of the throne. Not to anyone else. 
what trust he had in Joseph or in the Spirit of God that was in Joseph. Joseph had become like his son. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And what have we said about Joseph from the very beginning? Man, this guy loved clothes. He was all about garments, man. I mean, he, you know, when we first meet him, he's, he's wearing that, that coat of many colors that, that actually translates to a coat of, of royalty, a coat of birthright, the birthright of, of the house of Jacob, who, who was actually giving it to his youngest son because all of his other sons were just a bunch of idiots. I mean, well, not, not really idiots. I mean, but, but they, they were just not following the Lord the way they're supposed to be. But Joseph did. But there was something in the life of Joseph that allowed him to stick out to the point that his brothers wanted to kill him. And he went from that garment to the garment of a slave. From the garment of a slave, he got a garment of a prisoner. And we saw that, didn't we? It kept talking about the chains of clothes. And now he gets another change. And this is a good thing, because that last picture we had, of, he, didn't, he wasn't wearing much. Because that, that was the, the garb of the prisoner. But now he's adorned clothed with garments of fine linen, and he has a gold chain around his neck. Please don't call it bling. But, uh, so, so he's got this gold chain around his neck. So then, it, then, then look at verse 43, and it, it says, he, he had him ride in a second chariot which he had, and they cried out before him, bow the knee. In other words, they're telling all the people, every time they had their, their, their parades, you know, where Pharaoh would be riding out in front of, of, of all, and, and right behind him was Joseph. And they said, bow your knee to him. They were giving praise to the one who was, in essence, their salvation, their savior, because he presented the plan of God to them. So he sent him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent. So what he's saying is, I declare as Pharaoh that without your consent, No man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. No man will do anything here. No man will walk through here without your consent. You're in charge. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zafnat Pa'aneah. I want you all to repeat that with me three times. All right, got it? Ready? No, let's not do that. And he gave him as a wife, Azanath, the daughter of Potipharas, a priest of On, that was the priest of the uh, worship of the sun. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So are you taking hold now of what just happened here? Of what just took place? Certainly we're seeing a rags to riches story. You might even be saying, wow, In one day, Joseph was raised from the pit to the pinnacle. Well, actually, it took 13 years for that to take place. Now, to a certain extent, yes, his his life did change overnight, but there were 13 years of God working in Joseph to get him to this point where God would work through Joseph. And I hope that you noticed, uh, because I mentioned it, but I hope that you noticed that, that this pag- what this pagan king saw in Joseph. He saw the spirit of the living God working in and through Joseph. 
He saw the Spirit of God. Now, here's the question. When people look at our lives, what do they see? When people are looking at our lives, what do they see? Do they see the Spirit of the living God working in our lives? Do they see the Spirit of God working in my life? Do they see the Spirit of God working in your life? Do they see the Spirit of God manifesting in the things that we're doing? Do they see it? If not, maybe it is because we are not allowing the Spirit of God to work in us. From that respect, sometimes we're our own worst enemies. When we refuse to live our lives for the sake of Christ. When we set aside the Word of God to follow our own fleshly inclinations. Perhaps we're not submitting to the Spirit's leading in our lives. You know, the Lord really wants to work through each and every one of us who confesses Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. I mean, He really wants to work through everyone who confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to work through you. Now, there's three things that He wants to do. Actually, three things that He does do so that He can work through our lives. Number one, He demands that He work through us. He demands that He works through us. But He also desires to work through us. While the demand is there, He will not do so unless we will let Him into our lives. So He demands it, but He desires it. And when He does, He delights in it. He demands to work in our lives. He desires to work in our lives. And when He does, He delights in working through our lives. But are we letting Him? Are we letting Him? I want you to consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 21. See then, he says, that you walk circumspectly. In other words, walk carefully in this life. Circumspectly means to walk being aware of everything that is around you. That's circumspect. Being aware of everything. Being wise, being vigilant, and being diligent in your vigilance to know and understand what's going on in this world. Are you aware of what's going on in this world? Because it does play a role in, in the end times. It plays a role in what's happening. It plays a role in what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. So see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, redeeming the time just means making the most of every opportunity that you have, making the most of every opportunity as a believer in Jesus Christ, making the most of every minute, of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month and every year that you live for Christ, making the most of every bit of time because the days are evil. Does anybody not know that the days are evil today? All you got to do is read the newspaper or look at the news on TV. This is an evil world in which we're living. 
I, I, was, I was shocked. I used to be a high school teacher, and, and, and you know, I, I get so burdened when I see the violence that are, that, that, that's happening in our public schools today. I mean, this young girl that was stabbed because she refused to go to, to prom with somebody. Did you all read about that or hear about it? Isn't that sad? That that would happen? I mean, we could go on and on and talk about all kinds of incidents that have happened. But the fact of the matter is, that, that one incident there tells us, listen, if it's gone into our schools, or let's say in Cal- Colorado, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a public school, fourth graders are, are drug dealing with marijuana? Because it's legal in this state. Yeah, for the adults who get it, for, you know, now legally, but now they pass it on down, or, 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 or the kids have access to it? Is that not being irresponsible with things? Boy, our country's wacky. The point is, it's evil. Do you know this day is evil? That's why we need to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation and debauchery and all manners of, of, of excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be continually being filled with the Spirit of God. So it isn't Joseph who alone is filled with the Spirit of God to be seen, having seen the, the Spirit of God working in him. It is for each and every one of us as believers to be filled, continually being filled with the Spirit of God, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, not speaking like the world speaks today to each other. I, I, can't, I can't, just can't stand it when, when believers talk like the world. We've all been there, haven't we? We all know the words. But do we need to say them? Sure got quiet in here. How are we to speak now? We're to speak with God's Word. In psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. A whole different attitude in our lives now. Uh, Giving thanks always. By, By the way, giving thanks always, not just on a certain day of the year. Giving thanks always for all things. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. What Paul was saying in verse 18 is that we need to be continually being filled with the Spirit of God. Yes, the days are evil out there, but greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is He. Greater is the God who says, I want to be not only with you, I want to be with you and in you. I want to be in you. So don't use the fact that there's tremendous wickedness in the world as an excuse. No, the days are evil, but we need to walk according to God's ways. You see, as, as you're being continually filled with the Spirit of God, as you submit to His will and not yours, you, you will have a joy in your heart that will overflow with thanksgiving to God and submission to others. And when I say that, I mean, in other words, humility with one another. You know, no one should lord it over anyone. The fruit of the Spirit will flow from your life and others will see that the Lord is not only working in you, but working through you. And so with Joseph, we see him as a good example of a man who seemed to have all the gifts, all the talents for leadership, but it was the Lord who developed his character and his talents over the 13 years of his wilderness experience. 
He was even given a name that reflects the character of God revealed through Joseph's life experience with Pharaoh. That funny name that we read, you know, I mean, it's made up of a few Egyptian names for seer, prophet, clever, discerning, and wise. But together, that whole name together means God speaks and He lives. That's what Joseph's name was, was that Pharaoh gave him. God speaks and He lives. God speaks, God lives. So let me ask you, and I don't want you to answer this out loud, I just want you to think about the question, can God use you whenever and however He wants? Can God use you whenever and however He wants? But the second question will help you answer the first. Have you stopped struggling and plotting to avoid the hard lessons of life and learn to simply trust God and trust Him alone, no matter what you face. Because when you trust Him, you are trusting that He is with you and He cares about you. That is why Peter said, cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. The first part of 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, it is a verse that is given to King, King Asa or King Asa in 2 Chronicles, but the first part of it is for us as well. He says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. Is your heart loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your heart loyal to Him? I want to leave you with this thought and I want to say it clearly to you and I want you to take hold of it. God does His best work in our weaknesses and with our broken hearts. God does His best work in our weaknesses. When we're prideful, when we're arrogant, when we're trying to be self-sufficient as if we can handle it ourselves, God doesn't work there. He does His best work in us, in our weaknesses. Paul said, when I am weak, then I'm strong. He does His best work in our brokenness. David remembers that very well. After his great sin with Bathsheba, he wrote Psalm 51. In verse 17 of Psalm 51, he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart thou, O Lord, will not despise. When Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah in the synagogue, he said, I have come to heal the brokenhearted. It is in our brokenheartedness that God does His best work. When we humble ourselves, He will exalt us in due time. When we humble ourselves, 
He will promote us. When we humble ourselves, He will elevate us. When we humble ourselves, He will exalt us. And it is at the cross where we bow in humility to His love. Shall we pray?